And welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network's live coverage from Champions Gate. My name is Mark Zomik, and I'm one of the hosts of the Stunt Show. I'm also the music director of the Nachum Siegel Music Stream. So this is either a special edition of the Stunt Show, a special edition for a table for two for Naomi Nachman, or a very early start to our Arab Shabbos programming. The, taco, the topic for our discussion today is Asay Lecharav. A great topic this week, as Rabbi Yudin before mentioned, that it is a mitzvah that appears in this week's Parsha. After 18 years of service, earlier this year, Rabbi Pinchas Weinberger announced that his current contract, scheduled to end on April 30th, 2014, would be his last at the Young Israel of Tinek. Rabbi Weinberger, the scion of a rabbinic family, has led the Young Israel as it grew from 36 families to over 175 today. Rabbi Weinberger has served our congregation with distinction. He has also served in the leadership of the RCBC and is currently a teacher at the Frisk School in Paramus. The young Israel of Teaneck is grateful for Rabbi Weinberger's service, and we wish him and his family much hatzlacha as they embark on the next chapter in their lives. So, the young Israel of Teaneck is currently in search of a rabbi. And before I introduce our guests, I need to make something very clear to all our listeners. I am currently a vice president and former president of the shul. In my capacity as a board member, I will be active in the management of the selection process. My responsibilities include the establishment of an offer package, as well as scheduling visits and voting. All this will be done with Am Ve'eda. I am not a member of, and I have no behind-the-scenes knowledge of, the working of our rabbinic search committee. To be clear... I hold no insider's knowledge, and no one should read anything into any of my questions this morning. I do, perhaps, have a more peripheral experience than many of our listeners. In 1974, I watched as my grandfather sat in the front row of Obed as the congregation previewed his potential successors. It was quite odd to see. In 1984, it was at the Shiva House for my aforementioned grandfather that Rabbi Macy Gordon publicly gave his two weeks' notice. As a teenager, I watched B'nai Yeshurun then trans- transition to a three-rabbi panel, to an interim rabbi, and then to Rabbi Arya Weil. It was not a smooth process. Eighteen years ago, and purely by coincidence, when the young Israel of Tinek was then selecting their rabbi, Rochelle and I were not living in the community at the time. They were choosing between Rabbi Weinberger and a candidate who was, shall we say, a few bechinot short of smicha. 
That candidate, Rabbi Stephen Finkelstein, who has gone on to a successful career in education, is in fact my brother-in-law. As we embark on what I hope will be an interesting conversation with our guest, I would pose a question to our listeners. What do Rabbi Alan Henkin, Rabbi Elliot Schoenberg, and Rabbi Ronald Schwartzberg have in common? It is these three men who place most, if not almost all, of non-Chabad pulpit rabbis in the United States and Canada. Rabbi Henkin for the Reform Movement, Rabbi Schoenberg for the Conservative, and Rabbi Schwartzberg for the Orthodox, Modern Orthodox Movement. So who is Rabbi Ronald Schwartzberg? Rabbi Schwartzberg has served as the director of the Morris and Gertrude Bienenfeld Department of Jewish Career Development and Placement for Yeshiva University's Center for the Jewish Future since 1905. Before his current position at YU, Rabbi Schwartzberg served as pulpit rabbi in Highland Park, New Jersey, beginning in July 1986, after serving as associate rabbi of the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. He brought with him a passionate commitment to the principles of Ava Yisrael, political activism, and bridge building. Shortly after his arrival in Highland Park, Rabbi Schwartzberg was instrumental in relocating Congregation Avas Achim from New Brunswick, New Jersey, to Highland Park. Under his leadership, Congregation Avas Achim developed Avas Achim University, an innovative and far-reaching educational endeavor that enlists top-tier scholars and religious leaders to teach at the synagogue and has attracted attendees from across the state. Rabbi Schwartzberg is married to Mora Judy, a preschool teacher at RPRY in New Jersey, and together they have four children, Ari, Ilana, Aviva, and Shana. Rabbi Ronald Schwartzberg, welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you, Mark. It is, uh, it is great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. So let's get right into a conver- to our conversation. Um, last night, uh, Ira Mitzner said that uh, in the formulation of the Center for the Jewish Future, one of the guiding principles was the modern Orthodox community needed a central address, and YU and the CJF was, is becoming that address. How did the OU, RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, and YU officially align to aid placement under your leadership? First of, first of all, thank you very much for having me here today. It's great to be with you. And the answer to that question is it happened way before I was born. Okay. It's a decades-old relationship uh, that the RCA, the OU, and Yeshiva University have together. But if you think about it, it really does make a lot of sense. The OU is the congregational arm of our big tent that uh, we've been hearing about, this big tent of modern orthodoxy. And it is our congregational arm. The RCA serves as our... Um, rabbinic fraternity, and Yeshiva University is the academic center of the modern Orthodox community. doesn't make sense for all three organizations to have their own placement offices, and literally decades, of go, decades ago, it was decided that it would be hosted at Yeshiva University, and uh, we represent this world of the OU, the Rabbinical Council of America, and of course our own Musmachim. So while you're, you're saying that it was officially there for some time before you stepped in, I mean, even based on my introduction, I, I don't think the perception of the community of a formalized process, which, which we'll discuss in a minute, existed before you, well, I, and, and perhaps it did, but I think from the outsiders, which is certainly my view of the, you know, as a, as a Balabas in, you know, for a number of years, it, and a 
peripheral viewer of the topic, it seems like it wasn't as organized as it is now. I think there's truth to that. Um, certainly in 2005, not 1905. Oh, uh, did I say 1905? <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, 2005, when I came uh, to this position, we did make a lot of changes to formalize the process, to make it more open, more transparent, um, and hopefully more professional. Mm-hmm. And so let's just, I think there's a lot of misconception about the process. One of the interesting things um, that to prepare for this and actually the whole thing that our shul is going to, I read a book by Stephen Fried called The New Rabbi, which is the st- chronicles the story of a conservative shul going through a process very similar and not relying on the experts in the, in the conservative community and sort of at their peril and the mistakes they made. So let's just walk through at a high level as you did for us at Young Israel a number of weeks ago. So um, a shul gets to a point where they're deciding for whatever reason, they're at the point where they are looking for a new rabbi. That usually happens at any point, I guess, during the year, depending on the rabbi. But when would, regardless of when a rabbi is sort of going to announce that he's not going to continue, when would a process in the course of a year typically begin, and what would be the first step a shul would take? I think the process begins actually before the rabbi actually announces his retirement there are usually officers what I would call, or players within a congregation who have had some kind of conversation with the rabbi there's a general understanding that this time is getting closer and hopefully they're beginning to prepare for it once it's public and once it's announced that's where uh, the actual process of looking for a new rabbi starts it can start at any time during the year my just to, and, uh, apologize for interrupting. Just you're, you're, it's probably fewer than half of your placements are rabbis retiring. They're probably rabbis who are moving up to a bigger shul or a different community, right? It's not, it's not all retirements. Because I, I guess I just want to point. Absolutely, it's a different type of discussion. It's a, probably a much more sudden, in many cases, discussion. Yes, our office places everybody from uh, assistant rabbis to uh, rabbis moving up in their careers. And they could be moving up in their careers because they are replacing a retiring rabbi um, or a rabbi who's moving on to another position himself, leaving a vacancy. But the process actually, in an ideal situation, would begin a year before the opening is actually available. Um, It would begin in the summertime. We would try to get the congregation to begin to prepare for the process of rabbinic transition. It's an incredibly emotional time for a congregation the transition of rabbinic leadership. It can also be harnessed as a uh, wonderful opportunity for a congregation for renewing energy within the congregation, for understand renewing a mission, creating a mission, understanding what it is that they're looking for in new rabbinic leadership. Where do they want their congregation to be in three to five years? Those are the ideal questions that a congregation should be asking themselves when they take upon this incredible opportunity to look for new rabbinic leadership. And that process should begin by having focus groups in a congregation so that a search committee is actually getting feedback from the congregation. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. It creates trust in the search committee when they take their friends and the congregation, which almost all congregations have some diversity to them, 
get that data in the focus groups, use that data to go to the second level, which would be the creation of a congregational-wide survey that could be done uh, mm-hmm. you know, electronically. Take that feedback, take it seriously. Use that feedback to create a job description. Every shul knows what a rabbi does in the big picture. He's the guy who you gives think the drushes. Really true? I'm not sure. Yeah, they know he gives. He's the guy who gives the drushes. Right. He's the guy who gives a gemara shear. Right. But every shul is nuanced, mm-hmm. and every congregation is looking for something specific. That job description is extremely important. I will not send a candidate to a shul that does not have a job description, and the reason for that is I don't want our wonderful rabbis applying to empty spots. I want them to apply to particular positions that are of interest to them because they think they have the skill set. Right. It's not all about size and money. It's about the fit. It's about the fit. It's always, it's a shidduch. Right. It's like getting married. It's also, I, I, I think that congregations, um, especially diverse congregations, approach the search with great trepidation that each individual is going to say, I'm sure they're going to pick somebody who I'm not going to like because they don't fit into the to the norm. And I think that the steps that you've just laid out, even at the outset of the process, I know in our case, in the Young Israel, have added a tremendous amount of calm and uh, and, and trust that every, all the voices are going to be heard. There likely can be a consensus in a very diverse shul. And, um, and certainly the, one of the most important points, I think, from my perspective, which you didn't mention, is wherever possible, everything out in the open. Transparency. Transparency, absolutely. Now, certainly, as we go into the next discussion of the next process, the next part of the process, so once we have a job description and that job description gets posted, we're likely to see some resumes come in. And at this point, I think everybody should understand and must understand that some of this now needs to be kept confidential. Correct. Um, so one of the you, you, can, the reasons it, it sort of needs to be confidential are? Well, first I want to tell you that I happen to be <clears throat> very, very proud of the Young Israel of Tinek. I think they're doing a wonderful process, very professional, and they are going through these steps. And I think that because they're going through these steps, it's going to bring the congregation mm-hmm. together, and they're going to be very successful at the end of the process. Um, confidentiality is extremely important. When you have rabbis who are, let's say they're a rabbi in a particular congregation for X amount of years, and for whatever reason they're looking for a new challenge in their life, and they start to look at perhaps new opportunities that might be available out there, they're not yet ready to let their congregation know because they don't know they're going to get the job. Right. Only one of them is going to get it. Only, only one of perhaps 20, 25, 30 mm-hmm. Uh, people who are applying for a particular position can get it. It doesn't always go very well when their congregations find out, um, not through them, that they might be uh, snooping around the rabbinic market to see what's right. available. So we want to protect their confidentiality. Um, do you feel that as you're fielding candidates, and I don't want to say um, vetting ca- – I mean, to some extent you're vetting candidates, but the candidates are going to come through if they insist on going through – that your experience as a pulpit rabbi helps, hurts, gets in the way of your... I mean, does that change perhaps your perspective on 
how to talk to these potential candidates? I, I think it's invaluable that I had the experience of being a rabbi myself. I understand what goes on in congregations, and I understand what's going on on the rabbinic side. Mm-hmm. So I really bring, I think, both sides to the table. I understand the malacha. I understand right. the work that's involved here. I also understand how to speak to the balabatim who are going through this process. I've done it with them several times personally. Right. Um, so the next step of the process is the resumes come in, the committee goes through the resumes, they pick a number of candidates about how many you recommend as the next t- to get through to the next level. So it's very fascinating. Um, I began my position, as we said, in 2005. And in 2005, we lived in a very different world than we live in today. It's no diff- iPhones. <laughs> it's very different. No, I think economically. Um, it was a better time. It was a better time. Mm-hmm. And it seemed at that time that there were many more positions. Um, and today we seem to have fewer positions. We are still producing wonderful, wonderful musmachim. And there are not as many positions as there are rabbis available. I have a theory about that. And my theory is that um, during the 60s, many more people went into Rabbanus than you would normally expect because they were staying in YU longer going to Smich to avoid going to Vietnam. The draft. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that after that time period, in the early to mid-70s, there was a backlash where many fewer people went through. And I see that uh, just even from an education perspective, the principles that I see um, that I saw during the, you know, between 2000 and 2010 certainly were either over 60 or just about 40. There was a big gap there. And I think the same thing happened where you had uh, all those rabbis who went into it in the 60s and early 70s in that point of 2005 started moving in to retirement. So there was a much bigger pool of positions to fill at that time. Made up? No, no, no I, evidence I think behind it? Yeah. I, I think there's some truth to that, but I think there's many other people involved as well. Uh, we have an incredibly inspired younger generation, and a lot of that has to do with the gap year or gap right, years sure. in Israel. And I think that you see it on a, on a national level even now. I was just reading in the New York Times recently, um, of I, I can't remember exactly the name of the project, but young people who are graduating MIT who could get jobs for six-figure salaries who are taking these kinds of internships that are paying them $33,000 in incubators in depressed cities around the country. And I think we have the same idea. We have an inspired, younger generation that really wants to make a difference in Kuala mm-hmm. Israel. And they're looking for positions. Right. And these are the kind of people we want. They're exciting. Sure. They, they want to change the world. Um, so part of it is... Part of it is economic. The other thing in the rabbin is rabbis don't like to retire. Right. They don't like to retire because it's a calling. You don't retire from a calling. So in the best of times, rabbis don't like to retire. In difficult economic times, when your value of your house is not what you thought it might be at retirement, when the value of your your 401k or your 403b in a nonprofit world isn't what you thought it would be, it's even uh, less of an opportunity to right. think about retiring. So we have a frozen, we had a frozen market. It's beginning to unfreeze because the economy has started to change a little bit. And we are starting to see some movement of, um, older rabbis who are thinking about retirement and even unfortunately communities who might not have had the guts to help their rabbi understand that it's time to retire 
are now thinking about that because of the fact that the economy is a little bit better. It's a very, I want to say, politically correct way of... Yes, it is. And I think that in reality, it's extraordinarily hard. Again, from seeing from growing up, it's hard for a community to convince a rabbi that maybe... I mean, again, I go back to... um, I am sure that my grandfather retired voluntarily. Um, my guess. Uh, but I, I saw, you know, growing up that sort of, a rabbi will always have friends, quote unquote. I mean, I think that it's, it's crucial that a rabbi has personal friends who he can socialize with in the shul to really hear what the Balabatim are saying, to give him guidance. So that because that's sort of essential to any successful rabbi, no matter what Balabatim say in, um, no matter what Balabatim say in general about it's time to go or not, their friends can sort of poo-poo it to some extent, and therefore it might be hard. And you're right, it's a calling. So he doesn't, it's going to be very hard to tell a rabbi, you know what, maybe times have changed. How does a congregation approach that? So the question is, in, in the old days, did we see rabbis as taking a position and once that they were in their position for call it 10 years, Mm -hmm. it was almost as if it was considered to be a lifetime contract. And do we have the right to say that we need different, we need to go in a different direction? We live in a world today where in almost every profession, nobody stays in the same place for very long. It's a very different time, correct. Very different time. And I will tell you another thing where I think society has probably changed the rabbinate. We don't even pay attention to it. Society used to change at a much slower pace than it does today. Today, the world changes. We go to sleep, we wake up into a world that's technologically different than it was when we went to sleep the night before. Because the world is so global, because it's moving so quickly, because trends change so quickly, a rabbi that begins his career at 27 years old in congregation Avasachim in Highland Park, Mm -hmm. when he is 45 years old, there's a different congregation surrounding him. Right. But you would hope that in many cases a rabbi could grow with a congregation. You know, you would expect that somebody who's younger... So now I have a theory. Go ahead. And that theory is that if the community is not dynamic, the rabbi can grow beautifully because he's growing with the same people. Uh-huh. But if the community is growing dynamic, as is many congregations around the country... The younger people who are growing within that congregation might look at their leadership one day and say, who saddled us with this oh, sure. rabbi forever? Right. Look, that, that was one of the, the arguments. Um, I don't know if you were paying attention to the debate at the National Council of Young Israel over um, what they call 12.4, where once you became a young Israel, you could never leave. Because the argument was the Balabatim that paid to establish a shul established an orthodox shul with a machitza, and who were you 30 years later to decide that that's not the case? I think the times have changed. It's one of the reasons why that was repealed, because times do change, and we need to, to grow with the times. Um, before we introduce um, our, our two uh, additional guests, so the, the resumes come in. They vet the resumes. We have a smaller number. They're going to do um, some kind of remote interview, generally. Sure. And you're going to pick a few candidates to bring it to interview face-to-face. Right. So we recommend several steps. One is to take the resumes. Obviously, we provide search committees with a tool to help them 
look at the resumes, decide which resumes are the ones they want to go forward with, <clears throat> to take those resumes, call the resumes down to a number of people that they might do a phone interview with. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice here. Um, a phone interview uh, could be a Skype interview, it mm-hmm. could be a video chat interview, but to use some t- technology to have a, an interviewer, they get to know the candidates. One of the biggest fears that I have in search committee is burnout. It's mm-hmm. a very intense process for the search committee, for the Balabatim themselves. Think about interviewing 20 people by phone for an hour or more. Right. It's a few-day it's, it's, process. Sure. It's, it's exhausting. And then how do you remember the first candidate from the 20th? You can't do that many. You have to take your resumes. You have to call it down to a number that's reasonable, you know, eight, nine, maybe ten, that you'll do phone conferences with, phone calls with. You have to limit those calls to getting to know the candidates. From there, you're, you're going to further call down the number of candidates um, by going to the next steps, which would, which would be an in-person interview. What are unfair questions for a congregation to ask a rabbi? I think almost all questions are fair game. You know, this is a shirach. This is a, a community has to be able to live with this rabbi and his family, and the rabbi and his family has to live with this community. So I, I really don't know what would, an unfair question would be. It's more about attitude. Right. How do you ask the question? Um, after, so they call down the candidates, they do a face-to-face interview, and now it's time to bring in... Three candidates for Shabbos. Three can, and this is going to happen around January, February time. February, March. Yeah, before, before Purim Pesach time for sure. Um, once those three candidates come in, it's a whole Shabbos. You're, in, you know, it's, it's the, so they get to feel the community, you get to feel the rabbi, and then it's time for a vote, and hopefully a candidate's gonna right. be a consensus and, candidate. Right. And there every congregation has to look at its own bylaws, its own constitution to understand how do you actually engage a rabbi in that particular congregation. In the most ideal situation, one of those three candidates that came for their Shabbos tryouts will stand head over shoulders and there'll be a recommendation from the search committee to the board, from the board to the membership. That's pretty standard mm-hmm. practice. Although in some congregations, they actually take all three candidates, put and them put before the, uh, the congregation for a vote. Um, okay, so we have a candidate and one of the things we did sort of mention is that throughout this process the board is sort of managing how much they can afford to pay. So the rabbis coming, at least the final three rabbis are sort of knowing what the financial package is going to be before they come to make sure they're all interested. Yeah, it would not make too much sense to bring three candidates in if they didn't have some idea of the parameters of the compensation package so that you know that if you are going to offer it, to one of those three rabbis, they're going they're to accept the position. Um, and some congregations actually ask the rabbis to sign, if we make you an offer, uh, will you accept it before they come in for that Shabbos? I've seen it done before. Um, so before, and, and we're going to bring in our guests and say, this is Mark Zomik, this is a special edition of the Stunt Show, live from Champions Gate, Rabbi Ronald Schwartzberg, with uh, two new rabbis coming out, who will be introduced in a second. We, of course, want to thank the folks um, at uh, Champions Gate, who are our hosts this weekend, Javi Becker, uh, Miriam Nachum, and the entire JMNAM staff. 
thank uh, the YU community, Javi especially, for hosting and help coordinate this fourth hour of JMVM as well as the previous three and our entire weekend. A very fun session coming up in a couple hours for those of you who are here with Nachum Miriam, Susie Schwartz, and uh, Avi Lauer. Um, about communications, interestingly, interestingly, I'm not sure. So before we go to our guests, I have one sort of question before we go there. Is So fast forward a couple years, and however many years you want to put, a, put in, um, and the relationship is goes sour. I'm sure it never happens, but um, ultimately Yeshul gets to a point where um, the Shul and the rabbi feel they need to part ways. I have always viewed, again, from being one of the Balabatim who's managed shuls for a number of years, and Baruch Hashem, I've never been actually in this situation, but I've seen it uh, from afar. When there's a disagreement between a shul and a rabbi, and a shul and a rabbi decide to go to some kind of rabbinic arbitration to moderate that dispute, the shul never wins. Either deference to... um, Lakav schus in deference to Kavod Harav, or certainly if I'm not going to be Lakav schus, the boys' club protecting each other. How do you avoid? And that's my perspective. How do you avoid that from happening, even getting to that point? The end of rabbinic careers is a very sensitive area, and I think the way to address the concerns that you have risen is by taking a more proactive approach to the rabbinic contract when rabbis begin new positions. So, for example, what is, the, what is the difficulty? What is the number one difficulty at the end of a rabbinic career when, you, as you say, the relationship goes sour? Or if, in fact, the rabbi really does want to retire when he's 70 years old? Mm-hmm. It's finances. It's finances. And nobody has ever thought to sit with rabbis and talk to them about preparing themselves for retirement. Today, that's a field of science, of study. How do people retire? Right. People are going to are going to be retired and live 30 years. They have to be prepared for that. I, I, and I totally understand that. And that's one of the reasons, uh, and probably the primary reason why it's difficult. I think what's difficult from, um, again, from the Balaba, from the Balabatisha perspective, is there are certain accepted norms in terms of that financial package that most Balabatim don't know. And if you are going through a relationship with a rabbi for whether it's two years or 30 years, and that rabbi says, okay, part of my package is to put $2,000 in an IRA or $5,000 in a retirement package, come 30 years later, I know I'm being cynical about it, that congregation is on the hook for Chodos Hashanah, right? And it puts the congregation in a difficult financial situation had they not known on day one. Because, by the way, let's just say that that's basic, whether you're here for two years or 50 years. If that's fair, tell everybody it's fair and put it on the table. So I'll share with my two young colleagues that are sitting next to me here that when you write your rabbinic contracts for your first pulpits, you have to make sure that part of your compensation is contributing to the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, began probably over 30 years ago a pension plan. Um, pension is really the wrong word. It's, well, it's, it's a 401k, it's a, whatever. It's a 403b, right. and you have to you have to put the maximum number of dollars that you can in there, still being able to you know pay all of your expenses. But that is an expense like any other expense, and the obligation to save for retirement is on each of us as individuals. 
And on this rule to help from the beginning. Correct. Correct. And in fact, the RCA recommends about 15 and a quarter percent of your actual salary should be put into the RCA plan. And the average, unfortunately, is not that high. However, the second thing that is extremely important, and this is where we're trying to change the culture, the concept of severance is not a halachic one. The concept of Chodesh Lashana is something that Rav Moshe Feinstein uh, wrote about and believed was a fair settlement at the end of a rabbinic career. However, if there's nothing in the rabbinic contract that specifically says that the rabbi is entitled they're getting it to anyway. severance. They're getting it anyway. They're, in many congregations, they're going to get it because people have come to understand, but there is not necessarily a halachic obligation. I would much prefer to see... Torah, is there a din Torah, uh, an accepted, accepted din Torah in this country that won't take Ramosha's position and give Chodos Hashanah regardless of what the contract says? I'm not convinced uh, that that's the case all the time. The, it really, it really depends on the circumstances of the, of the retirement. Is it purely a retirement? Is it a congregation deciding that they do not want the services of that rabbi right. anymore? It really is very, very specific. But I would agree with you in general. Right. That, that Chodosh Hashanah is an accepted practice. Right. And that everybody should know. And prepare. But, but the way that everybody should know and prepare Put is, is putting it in the contract. Then you don't, there's no reason for a base thing. Fair enough. It's in the contract. Right. So um, one of the things I think that we as Balabatim admittedly consider enough in this process is how the candidates feel as we put them through this proverbial ringer. So uh, let me introduce two additional guests who have joined us this morning who I appreciate their patience as I grow, Rabbi Schwartzberg. A native of Rochester, New York, Rabbi Ariel Rakovsky studied for two years in Karen prior to attending YU. He graduated Yeshiva College with a bachelor's degree in biology. And Rabbi Rakovsky says he became a rabbi because he realized an- after attending dental school for a semester and after completing three years of smicha at Ritz that his talents were better suited to the pastoral, pedagogical, and uh, oratorial, oratorical aspects of the rabbinate. Um, he says he felt that he was better touching people's hearts than their gums, which, by the way, my wife, who has a toothache, might prefer that you have gone the other direction. Um, in the fall of 2006, he became the senior attorney at the Riverdale Jewish Center, and uh, he, uh, he joined the rabbinical staff of the Basin of America. Since 2007, he has served, uh, he, in 2007, he began serving as assistant rabbi in the Jewish Center, and he is currently the rabbi of the Irving Place Minion in Woodmere, New York. Welcome, Rabbi Rakovsky. Thank you very much. Uh, well, good morning, and uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, rabbi Ari Lamb graduated from Yeshiva College Summa Cum Laude. I barely got through school, so that's pretty good. Um, in both history and Jewish studies, I still had nightmares for 10 years that Rabbi Edelstein knocked on my door to take my diploma back. I promise you this is true. Uh, he, uh, both history and Jewish studies, he uh, earned research scholarships um, in support of his work fusing ancient Jewish studies with old Iranian studies. He subsequently won the Fulbr- Fulbright Scholarship. Wow. Um, to, com- to complete his master's in Hebrew and Jewish studies at the University College in London before commencing rabbinical studies at YU. He is now a member of the Strauss-Micha Seminar on Jewish Ideas and American Democracy and a well-traveled lecturer. He will be serving next year as the rabbinic intern 
of the Jewish Center in New York, so you can take uh, this year. Um, and uh, you, so I, got, I guess you could probably have a conversation with Rabbi Rakovsky on what's going on at the Jewish Center. We have. Do you have to wear funny clothes? Uh, I haven't reached that madriga yet. Okay. Um, right, because the Jewish Center, they still wear um, uh, morning coats to shul, right? Right. Still have mine. Wow. Um, do they, they, they custom make it for you? It's like they can't get it fitted. You know, so it's like a, it's like a suit. I, I remember it back to OZ and my grandfather. They, my grandfather only wore a top pad and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. That was his, uh, his compromise the rest of the year he went to it. Um, so you're listening to this conversation, uh, with, between Rabbi Schwartzberg and I about, um, placing of a rabbi from the, from the, op, from the other side of the perspective. And I don't know if you've ever heard sort of the Balabatim talk from this perspective of uh, of what the process is, from your perspective, Rabbi Rakovsky, what do you? How, how did you? I mean, you've gone through a few of these searches, I guess. Have and I remember growing up, my father chaired a few search committees uh, as a president or as the chair of search committees back in my uh, parents' uh, shul um, growing up. So I've seen it from both sides. And what's your perspective? You, did you feel that you were being overly put upon as a as a candidate? No, I. I don't think so. Um, I think it, it certainly is exhausting. Um, to some degree, it could be, depending on the kind of questions asked, it could be uh, viewed as invasive. But thank God I wasn't really subject to anything that was uh, inappropriate. So Every, what would be what invasive, do you think? Um, questions that are really intensely personal, perhaps, but... As I said, the questions that I was asked anywhere that I applied were absolutely, sometimes hard-hitting, but always, always fair. Um, do you feel that there's a question perhaps that you answered well enough to put you over the top in any of these positions? Oh, gosh. Like um, your go-to answer like this one. I had a conversation with a rabbi um, who I know who moved from a mid from a, an assistant rabbi in a big shul to a full rabbi in a big shul. And he says that the answer that he felt put him over the top was they asked him who his posik was, and he said, Ravar and Lichtenstein. And he said, for some reason, that changed people's perspective of him. Is that he didn't pick maybe one of the, you know, more, you know, Rav Schechter, not the, you know, Rav Willig answers. Mm-hmm. He had somebody who was a little out there a little bit more. They felt more comfortable with him. I don't know in the in the position that I am uh, blessed to uh, to hold right now. Um, if you spoke to members of the search committee, everyone might say that there was a different answer that they felt was right. a home run. It's a good point. I, I can tell you that there were that in one other position I applied. There was one answer that I'm fairly certain lost me the job. <laughs> wow, uh, which uh, is fine. You know, they well they, the same answer that loses you a job in one school gets you a job in another. Hundred percent. As as you're honest. That's Interesting. correct. For sure. Um, when you were look at, when you were in the field to look for this job that you now have in Woodmere, you were had other irons in the fire at the same time. So actually, at the at the time, this was this was the only shul that I was applying to at that particular uh, at that particular time. So you weren't juggling, but I would suspect there were a couple. If there are rabbis looking for move on, they might be juggling a couple offers at the same time. Right, that's usually or often the case. I mean, I, I would expect nothing less. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Lamb, perspective as a newly minted assistant at the uh, Jewish Center? Uh, first of all, many thanks for having me it on. It is my pleasure. Welcome. Um, the wonderful thing that the Jewish Center has taught me, and I'm, I'm still only the, uh, the rabbinic intern, is that uh, there are many moving pieces in, in a shul, and they can all fit together if the shul is just, if the shul is just right. So as a prospective uh, uh, 
job applicant in the years to come, um, one thing that I've learned is that when you have mentors, when you have friends in the community who are lay leaders and also who are clergy, um, you really can build a support system that can get you through the the job search. Did you know any about the bottom before you moved into the community? Um, there are family members uh, in the community, and my family goes back on the on the Upper West Side for a sure. long time. So I had uh, I had people in the community who were familiar. Shalom and Tina oh, Land. from West Hempstead. That's right, born and raised. Um, very nice. Uh, you went to Hank. I did. Very good. I'm very. I'm the Jewish geography. Uh, we'll play the game. No, you don't think? Yeah. Um, so you went to Morasha? No, I really? didn't. Where did you go to camp? As a visitor. Everybody now, Miriam's upset. Where did you go to camp? Camp Moshava. Very interesting. That's all because I know they were. You probably have siblings in Masora also, right? Or cousins. all over the place. All okay. over the place. Very interesting. Um, so you have to keep track of where everybody went. I used to joke that when my dad came for a visiting day in Morasha, it was like a Hawaii reunion. So I feel the same way now, especially in Masora. Um, so you're, do you have, Rabbi Rakowski, you have friends in the community? It's definitely I recommend having people you can socialize with in the community yeah, who that. can tell you sort of seriously that speech you made this morning was a little nutty. You might want to dial yeah. that back I, a little I, bit. I, I, I'll, I'll get sometimes, you know, that, that was great. Um, it should have been five minutes shorter. I'll get. Well, I think every speech I've ever heard needed to be five minutes shorter, but that's just, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, it's funny because I do it at work now also. I'll get somebody send me uh, uh, an email that they want to send out broadly to senior leadership, and I go, the email is perfect, just cut 40% out of it. And they have to find a way to sort of edit it down, and magically that happens. So I was having a conversation, a very. You wanted to say? I, just, I think right. that, that is actually part of the cultural change that we have today. There was a time, in fact, uh, um, Ari Lam's grandfather was a mas- is, is a master, sure. you know, uh, drusha writer, has written about to the, what has sure. happened to the drushot that uh, were once given. But we live in a society where things move quickly. The idea today that our balabatim in communities are consumers. Mm-hmm. They are Western consumers, and that is why it is not one size fits all. Every single shul today has a hashkama minion, a youth minion, sure. a young couple. You can avoid minion. the rabbi at all costs. You could avoid the rabbi at all costs. Right. If you want a sermon that's six minutes, you go to the six minute, right. you know, drasha. If you want a sermon that's fifteen minutes, you go to the main sanctuary. If you want no drasha at all, you go to hashkama minion. That's part of what rabbis need to understand today is who are they marketing themselves to. I saw um, two weeks ago we had the unbelievable privilege, I talked about it on the air last week, to spend Shabbos at Hask. And Rabbi Penner spoke for over an hour. It felt like five minutes. I mean, just he had the audience. He was a master of what he was doing. And, I mean, some rabbis can do that. Probably can't pull it off every week. Um, I had the opportunity, and I will not mention his name, um, um, a number of years ago on a Saturday night at Camp Masor at the canteen when most maybe it was the night before visiting day so all the kids and councils were gone to sit across in, uh, with uh, a newly minted pulpit rabbi I'm sure he had been an, as assistant but he was moving into a prestigious stellar following a rabbi who had been there for a number of years and it was one of the most fascinating co- conversations for me because it was a rabbi and a shul president who had no irons in each other's fire so he could really ask me an honest question, and I could really give him an honest answer, and vice versa, because he wasn't asking my advice as his president. It was a completely different shul in a completely different community. He laid out the following issue for me, and I would love to hear uh, the three of your perspective on it. 
he felt the machitza in his shul was a little too low. It had been certainly acceptable for the two previous rabbis. It was a young Israel, so it met the minimal requirements. He felt it was too low. He was a little uncomfortable with it. He knew that today he can raise the machitza uh, six inches. He wanted to raise it 12. He felt that if he waited three or four years, he could probably get the 12 inches. But if he went for six now, he couldn't get the 12 in three or four years. What do you think, Rabbi Lamb? As someone who's never had to deal with that right. sort of responsibility before. And hopefully never will have to, but it's, <laughs> I, I think it's a dilemma. And it was, and it was such an interesting way for him to lay it out. Or, you know, I could know I can get to X today. I really want to get to Y, but if I get to X today, I'll never get to Y. Does it pay to wait? I mean, listen, the scenario speaks to a lot of the things that we learn at REITs, which is first and foremost, researching the community that you are, that you are applying to. You have to know the communities. It's not a one size fits all thing. Um, and a corollary of that is respecting the traditions of your community and respecting the feelings of the people in your community and getting a sense of where they want to go as a group, as families, as individuals, and as a community in general. And I think gauging those two factors at the same time can really contribute to an effective decision-making process. Rabbi Rakowski? So, uh, first of all, um, I agree with everything that Rabbi Lamb said. Uh, just to add another uh, wrinkle to it, which is that if you if he could get the 12, quite apart from any halachic considerations, if you're there, and he can get it by building relationships, that is, I think, perhaps more valuable than getting the 6 just by making that the first thing that he does in the shul, which could actually end up perhaps costing him. I don't think he felt it was going to cost him. I thought he, he felt he can get away with but it. But on the positive side, certainly getting getting the, what he wanted by building the relationships necessary right. to get it, I think, is invaluable. Absolutely. Oh, rabbi Schwarzberg? Either of them could be my rabbi. Excellent. I appreciate it. But In, in all seriousness, though, I think... The critical piece of this decision, which is such a sensitive one at the beginning of a career in a new place, and the emotions on the height of a mechitza, the materials that our mechitza are made of, can be so emotional in a congregation. So I agree with both of my younger colleagues here that creating a community consensus over an issue is extremely important like this. And that's not done your first day on the job. Um, one of my suggestions for you, because uh, we heard this morning that part of the rabbinic uh, program at REITs is to bring in actors to help role play situations. I would um, I would recommend that for new, before people go out to the new rabbis, you have a session with shul presidents to uh, to grill them a little bit with no irons in the fire. We're not looking to hire anybody. Um, to say, uh, you know, here's what you might be up against uh, in the future. Just my uh, two cents to do maybe a seminar with some shul pre- some of the more difficult shul presidents. Although it's my understanding that at many uh, rabbinic meetings, everybody's shul president is difficult. But uh, maybe that's just what I hear. I have uh, been blessed to work with. Uh, okay. Two oh yeah. Wonderful. Okay, fine. <laughs> And not just because they might be listening uh, at the moment, but really two wonderful and honorable uh, shul presidents so far. And uh, well, honorable. Look, I think we're all doing it the same shemayim. Believe me, I have plenty of other things to do with my free time than to. Uh, um, although I will say to those people, including my father, who um, has not yet reluctantly accepted the presidency and been assured, although they may twist his arm to do it one day in the near future. Um, I, for all the work 
whether it's this or the Young Israel of Tinek or TABC or wherever I spend my um, my tzedakah hours. Um, I said this. Uh, Miriam is giving me uh, the arrow. Um, I see the value that it plays in everything else that I do. I see the blessings of communal service given to me in very, very clear ways. And I encourage people who think that, you know, politics, for whatever reason, is taken as a negative connotation. I don't view it that way. Politics is a discussion. It's building consensus. It's finding compromise. It's finding common ground. If you want to sit in the back of the shul, complain to the wall in the back of the shul, good luck getting an answer from the wall. If you want an answer about what's going on at a board meeting, come to a board meeting. And if you have a question for me, I'm happy to answer it. And that's always been our attitude. And I encourage all of our listeners to um, to participate in the same way. Mark Zamek on a special edition of The Stunt Show. And uh, we thank everybody at Champions Gate. And this fourth hour of Jame the Am for hosting us this morning, especially Javi Becker and the staff of the CJF. Um, any any parting words for the young Israel of Teaneck, Rabbi Lamb, as we uh, continue and or embark, I guess, on our search for a new rabbi? How, how would you advise us on what we should be doing? Obviously, everyone at the Young Israel of Teaneck has far more experience in, in this than I have because my experience is precisely zero. But I would <laughs> say that uh, that as someone who is uh, who is um, Finishing up the REITs educational process, there's so many fantastic young people going into the field. And there's really, I just have so many colleagues that are impressive, that are driven, that are idealistic, and that I think would be perfect for so many different communities. And it's, and I think it's Kadai for communities who are searching now to, to really snap up the, uh, to snap up these. It didn't occur to me, and I'm just kicking myself, did you think you had Protexia getting the job at the Jewish Center or not? I now, what did your grandfather say? <laughs> I hope he gets nachas. I'm um, sure he gets nachas. That's no, that there's no question. But uh, I would hope that I would hope he that he tell the, you not to do it, or he told you he told me not to go into rabbanus. No, oh, well, that's <laughs> what most rabbis said. You know, um, it, I was it mentioned that book before the new rabbi. So the rabbi that in the in the book was the, who was leaving was a rabbi named Jerry Wolpe from uh, Philadelphia, and his son David is a famous sort of noted speaker in Los Angeles. And David had been a had. Um, Smicha from JTS uh, long before he went in to take a pulpit and when he decided to take a pulpit he spoke to his father about it and his father gave him all the reasons that he shouldn't do it and he says okay dad I'm going to do it anyway tell me the reasons I should do it and he said there's something about being the rabbi in a community where everybody wants to be your best friend and all you have to do is smile and be nice to people and they will warm up to you and they will feel and, and it will be a mutual respect and there will be a relationship because they want to be your friend. Going over to a kid in, uh, in shul who's sitting in the hallway and smiling to them and say, Chaim, good Shabbos, makes that kid feel like he's a million bucks. And you have to watch that power you have over people. But it's a tremendous amount of power and you realize the power that you can, the positive power that you can impart on your balabatim just by being their friend. I think it's really important. And so um, I, I, I would I definitely echo Rabbi Wolpe's advice uh, to both of you as you embark on your rabbinic career. Um, and thank you for joining us here on the Nachum Single Network. Rabbi Schwartzberg, it uh, has been an honor to speak to you. I, I think I have another hour's worth of questions, or certainly in a few months I might have an hour's worth of questions. Well, we've just scraped the surface Definitely today. Scraped, the surface, scraped the surface. And I think as the process goes on, and I, and I will say... I, 
it takes um, um, uh, trust building, which I know you have spent a great time doing with us, and I'm sure you do with many other shuls. Um, every, definitely something that all shul batim have in common is that we know better than everybody else, and I think that we don't. We don't think that you have that in common, uh, or no? I, I think there's. I'm there's, being a little bit cynical, but there's I, too much. There's so much myth here about the uh, relationship between the rabbi and Balabatim. No, I don't think the rabbi. I just think in general, like I'm sure you meet Balabatim for the first time, who are embarking on the process, who are coming to you for advice, who say, "Okay, I, I know better." There's no question. Uh, that is true, but I, I'm just going back into the my my rabbi role here for mm-hmm. a second. The relationship between Balabatim and the rabbi, and the rabbi and Balabatim, in an overwhelming number of shuls, is wonderful and is positive. It's an inspiring relationship Mm -hmm. both ways. Often, when we're talking about issues of end of careers, contract times, sometimes the language is like two ships passing in the night. But overall and in general, we have very wonderful rabbis doing very holy work out there. 100%. And communities really appreciate well, that. And very special people with very special families. And, you know, I think that we, those of us who have employees, often, to our detriment, treat the rabbis sometimes a little too much like employees and um, and, and demand a tremendous amount, not realizing how invasive we are. And I think that we have to take responsibility for that. Um, but uh, Sof Kol Sof, you're right. I think in most situations that um, we we definitely hope and pray that and I and it's true that rabbis and congregations are especially in the past eight years are um, have been uh, been matched up to where it's a great relationship between the rabbi and congregation. So um, we thank you for your work. We thank you um, on behalf of the Young Israel of Tinek unofficially because I'm not on the rabbinic search committee. As I mentioned, thank you for your continued support and guidance. I think, again, as this book, A New Rabbi, that I read proves, we ignore the experts at our peril. We ignore process. Process is very and important. Process and, is extremely important. And it makes everybody much more comfortable to know that they're going to come, that the That's outcome right. will be positive. Especially in our world, you know, we're a, we're a, we're a small modern Orthodox community and we all have a brother, an uncle, Somebody mm-hmm. that we know who's going to be a great rabbi for our shul, and just give me your resume on the side. I'll slip it into right. the into the search committee because I have a great relationship with the search committee, and I know that if I give them a resume, you have a very good opportunity of you know getting an interview. I know position. just the opposite. <laughs> you don't want my fingerprints on anything. Um, thank you to our guests, Rabbi Schwartzberg, Rabbi Rakowski, Rabbi Rabbi Lamb, for joining us here on the Nachum Siegel Network on a special edition of the Stun Show, the fourth hour of JMEM. Thanks to everybody at Champions Gate for hosting us. Um, I enjoyed it very much. This this will be re- this will be rebroadcast on Thursday night in the eight o'clock slot of the Stun Show. So anybody, if you missed any part of it, plus it will be available on the archive. You can listen to it forever on the Nachum Siegel Network. Get the app. Get the app, get the app. Please get the app and listen to the show. Thank Once you. again, thank you very much to thank our guests. So thank much. you to everybody at Championscape. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Nachum. Thank you, ZK. Safe travels home, ZK, for Shabbos. This is Mark Zomik reminding you that no matter how long a journey may seem, every step you take brings you on closer to the end. Go out, make it a great Shabbos, everybody. <laughs> Show.